So, about, I think it was four years ago, I had this, um, I was interviewing this woman, and I had heard she's a missionary in Nicaragua. So this absolutely gorgeous, statuesque woman comes in the office, and I'm like, she doesn't look like any missionary I've ever seen. She's absolutely beautiful, gorgeous, like movie star beautiful, and there's a reason for that. So, you know, I'm going to interview, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, what called you to the mission field? I'm thinking of all the questions I'm going to ask her as I interview her. And so we're doing this for Today's Faith, my, um, this, this program I get to do on the Internet. And so she's like, Cheryl, has anyone told you my testimony? I said, you're a missionary in Nicaragua. She's like, yeah, but I kind of have a past, and I kind of want to talk about how the Lord saved me out of it. I'm like, great, that's wonderful. So anyway, she begins to share her testimony, right? She was like a Playboy centerfold. She was, uh, she was on Baywatch. She was, you know, in Hollywood. She was the type of person that was always at the Academy Awards. I'm like, what? You know, I had no idea. I thought you were a missionary in Nicaragua. But this explains why you look so gorgeous and, you know, who you are. And she was talking about coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she was talking about when she first um, started going to church and she went to Calvary Chapel Beachside, she said they would use these words. And she kept saying, these words, these words. And I didn't know what these words meant. And she wanted to learn the words. And one Sunday they got up and said, we're going to be having classes called Christianity 101. And we're going to be talking about the word of God and, you know, and different things. And she's like, I'm signing up for that class. And she looked at her husband. She wasn't quite sure what he'd do. And she thought, I've got to do this on my own. So she signed up uh, for Christianity 101. And she's in the car with her husband. She's driving home. And she said, I just want you to know, I signed up for Christianity 101. I want to know what the words mean. And he said, I signed up for it too, because I want to get deeper with Jesus. And she said, you know, that their faith got so, so deep with Jesus. She said before Jesus had been kind of like um, an ornament, just something extra. Church had been like, oh, if we feel like it and we're in town, we'll be there. But all of a sudden, fellowship became an essential. And her husband and she began to be called into the mission field and ended up being these missionaries in Nicaragua. But I was thinking about words because there are certain words that we don't hear in our culture today. You know, we'll hear them in the church, but outside the church, you say these things, people are like, what? You know, what do you mean? You know, I went to public school, but I had a very church vocabulary and I would put these words sometimes in my papers that I write for school. And the teachers would always start like going, good word. <laughs> yeah, it's King James. <laughs> but here's some of the words we don't hear in our culture. Grace. Sin. Faith. We hear believe. Believe, especially at Christmas. Believe. You know, like if we all believe in Santa Claus, maybe he'll be real. Mm-mm. Righteousness, redemption, justification, reconciliation, salvation, 
glorification. I'm going to repeat those a little later, so you're going to be fine. But let me say this. These words you will find in Romans over 60 times. That tells you that they're important. In our society, we hear words like law. It's the law. And they're always coming up with new ones, aren't they? I'm like scared to drive in January. I have no idea what they're doing now and what I'm going to get a ticket for. You know, our, my son, you know, he, he bought this car. It had tinted windows. He and um, his wife, who was his girlfriend then, they made all these lunches and they decided to go past them out at Skid Row. So all that the police saw was these windows coming down that are tinted and these brown sacks going out. <laughs> And they got uh, pulled over. He got a citation for his windows being too dark. But, you know, they're always enacting new laws. And we hear it's the law a lot. And we hear about law. We hear about tolerance. Tolerance. And we hear intolerance. And, you know, it seems like the people that are preaching tolerance are pretty intolerant. No offense, but that's what I'm seeing. If we don't like you, we just mock you on television. We hear the word disqualified, especially as we're going through these elections. We hear disqualified and we hear qualified. Oh, they're qualified. Oh, they're totally disqualified. I mean, if you talk about how maybe you don't think a Muslim should be the president of the United States, maybe because of Sharia law and his greater allegiances to to that kind of system, If you say that out loud, you're disqualified from being president. Are you kidding me? We hear words like performance. Well, they're performance. They're performance. And we hear words like condemnation. We hear those in culture. But because we rarely hear grace, sin, faith, righteousness, redemption, justification, reconciliation, salvation, or glorification, we've lost their meaning. They become just these big words that we've forgotten their meaning and we've lost their significance. How, what they mean and and why they're significant, why they're important. And we've lost, consequently, their relevancy to our lives. Why are these words like grace and sin and faith and righteousness, why are these crucial for us to have in our lives? And because we've lost their meaning, their significance, their relevancy, we have stopped applying them and working them into our lives. We are so conditioned by our society, by our school system by our media, to be performance-based. I mean, think about it. We are a society that's really based on television and the media. We, what, there's so many channels. So many channels, so many shows you can watch on television constantly. And you know, as if all the news shows aren't enough, they, they still have the old shows. They, you can watch television 24-7. 
and turn off your mind and let leave it to Beaver tell you all about life. We are so conditioned to performance because we're seeing performance. Over and over again, we are seeing performance. So even, forgive me, our politicians are conditioned to be performance-oriented. And it's not about character. It's about if you can sway the people by a good performance. That's our society. And because we're performance-oriented out there, we have somehow brought performance into the church. If I act like a good Christian, if I smile, if I read my Bible enough, if I say the right words, then I'm all right with God. You know, I was, I was telling the women in our leaders meeting that we put so many expectations on ourselves. We put mental expectations on ourselves and say, I should learn five new words a week. My vocabulary is so bad. I need to, what, what is that word you just used? Epiphany? How would I use it in a sentence? I'm going to use it five times this week and make it my own. You know, we're so, I want to be mentally more alert. I don't know about you, but all those, you know, increase your brain tests that come across. I'm like, I'll take that. And, and then you're thinking, I should be reading more books. I'm not reading enough books. And mentally, we put these expectations on ourselves. We put emotional expectations on ourselves. I should be more loving. I should be more patient. I should be more kind. I remember, I've told you this before, but I remember walking my dog, thinking, just pondering, meditating on the restraint of Jesus during um, his arrest and trial and just thinking, Lord, you were so restrained. You were so restrained. I need to be more restrained like you. I was having a holy moment. And this man on a bicycle says, woman, pull your dog in. And my dog and I, we were on our lane. He was trying to ride double with his friend and they were too big to ride double, no offense. And I, you know what I said? I said, pull your mouth in. Just like that. One moment having, you know, it's just so holy. Oh, Lord, you were so restrained. You're so wonderful. Pull your mouth in. And then he said, you pull your mouth in. I'm like, no, you first. I'm like, what is my problem? You know, I should be more restrained. I should be quieter. I should listen more. And we put these emotional expectations on ourselves. Boy, we're always, we're women. We're always disappointing ourselves. You know, I'm not going to react. I'm not going to react. I'm not going to react. You know? We put physical expectations on ourselves. You're gluten-free? I should be gluten-free. I really should be gluten-free. I think gluten might be bothering me too. I'm just eating this gluten right here just today, only because it's dipped in butter and garlic. Oh, this, this, this is for tomorrow and I'm only eating it because it's glazed. You know, and we put these, you know, I should be in better shape. I I need to do exercises. I, I need to, you know, the average person joins a gym, stays for six weeks and leaves. 
the average person exercises for six weeks and then that's it. They take like a three-year break. But you know, I should be more disciplined. I should be exercising. You know, I'm getting old. I'm losing muscle tone. And you know, if I don't keep in good shape, my grandchildren are just going to go, where is she? In bed? We'll go say hi. You know, they won't have a grandma to interact with them. These are my thoughts. And I know my thoughts are your thoughts. But our thoughts are not God's thoughts. But I know your thoughts. And then we put these spiritual expectations on ourselves. Oh, I should do my lesson, and then I should do three other lessons as well. And oh, if I, you know, if I don't finish this lesson, if I don't get it all done, and I need to probably do it, you know, uh, you know, and I need to pray more. And I watched, I watched Leave It to Beaver. What a waste of time! I had already seen that episode thirty times, and. And I should have been reading my Bible, or I should have been praying, or I should witness more. I talked to that person, and I didn't mention Jesus. I just said, "Nice day, good weather," and they're probably going to die in hell, all because of me. And we put these spiritual expectations on ourselves, don't we? How many of you do that? Am I? Oh, thank you. We're with real women. I'm so excited. Come back. Everyone who raised their hand, come back. And we feel that if we are good enough and meet our expectations, then we have God's favor because we're so performance oriented. But if we fail our own expectations, our own law, because we're putting ourselves under our own law, and this is not the law of God, this is not the heart of our Father. We expect rejection from God. Who's that? Cheryl Broderson praying? Huh, never heard of her. Heard her last week, but not the, you know, no, that's not the heart of our Father. We expect disqualification. Like God's not going to use us. He's not going to fill us. He's not, he doesn't want us. We expect neglect. That he's like, you know what? I'll get around to Cheryl Broderson. She, she hasn't been serving me that well. You put her down at, you know, seven billion. We're down on the list. Now I've got other things to take care of. That's what we expect, don't we? That's what we think because we have not performed. We have not met our expectations. You see, the law was a problem for the Jews, the Mosaic law, but our own laws, our own expectations, self expectations, are the law that we put ourselves under and we need to be set free as much as these Romans needed to be set free. And that's what I love about the book of Romans. It is going to correct our thinking. It is going to transform our thinking by the renewing of our mind. We are going to stop being conformed to the thinking of this world and our thinking is going to be transformed. There are many men and women who have been absolutely 100% changed and transformed by studying this book, not just reading, but studying, delving, going into it. And one of those who was absolutely revolutionized by this book was a man named Chuck Smith, who for years 
had tried to build a church for Jesus Christ. Tried in his best efforts. My mom one time said, Chuck, if you'd only be just more personality. You know, you need to just walk across the stage, throw your hands up in the air. Could you imagine my dad doing that? (laughs) And so he said he did it one Sunday. He walked back and forth across the stage, found his hands out like this and said, I look like an utter idiot. You know, but it was moving into that performance because we can become so performance-based. But it was in Romans that he discovered the power of faith and grace. And it revolutionized his life and his ministry. Grace really does change everything. And we will be changed by grace It is going to alter the conformity of our thinking to this world. And we're going to get rid of the term I should. And we're going to get rid of the term I shouldn't. We're also going to get rid of the phrase they should and they shouldn't. And we are going to pray it into ourselves. And we're going to pray it into others. As Hudson Taylor said, seek to move men by God through prayer alone. You see, when we put the expectations on ourselves, I should, I should, I should, we're taking our expectation off of God and putting it on ourselves, what we should do for God instead of what God should do in and through us or is doing in and through us. When we say they should, he should, she should, we're taking, again, our expectations off of God and putting it on them. What they, and we're putting them under the law. We're not doing that anymore. As, well, you're going to do it in the beginning. (laughs) Sorry, you're still human. But God is going to transform all of us as we go through this study of Romans. Through this epistle, we will learn the meaning, significance, relevance, and application of grace, faith, truth about sin, righteousness, redemption, justification, reconciliation, salvation, and glorification, because that's where we're all headed. Romans has been called the cathedral of the Christian faith. Martin Luther wrote about Romans, and he's another man. He was a Catholic monk, totally transformed and changed, revolutionized, and Not only was he revolutionized, but through him uh, came um, a great revival um, and people coming back to the Bible through Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote about Romans. This epistle is the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. This epistle of Romans was written by Paul. And you remember his testimony. He persecuted the church. He hunted Christians down out of their houses, pulling them out of their houses and committing them to prison. Until on the road to Damascus, he met the resurrected Jesus Christ. And the resurrected Jesus Christ absolutely turned his life upside down. 
In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul refers to himself as the chief of sinners. In 1 Timothy 1.16, he says that God saved him so that he could show a pattern through Paul that no one was beyond the grasp and grip and apprehension of Jesus Christ. That he pulled Paul in to make Paul a trophy of grace. That he is able to save to the uttermost all who come to him through Jesus Christ. Paul wrote the epistle from Corinth in Greece while he was ministering to the Corinthians. We're told in Acts that Paul was in Corinth 18 months. And we're also told in Romans chapter 16 that Paul wrote this epistle while he was staying at the house of Gaius. You know, I'm wondering why Paul was at this house. But did he write it all in one sitting? Or did he write a chapter, get up, walk around, go teach a Bible study, come back and go, oh, my letter to the Romans, right. Do you ever do that? You start an email and then, you know, you're gone for, you know, three days. And you're like, oh, I've got to write my friend. You go back and you're like, oh, none of what I wrote in that first paragraph has any relevance. God took care of all that. But, you know, now I'm going through these trials. Then you get called away emergency phone call or something and you forget it. And then like three weeks later, your friend finally gets their letter. You don't. Okay, never mind. I'm not. I do. But I'm wondering how he wrote this, what the process was, because it's so deep and it's so amazing and it's so heartfelt. Paul desired to visit Rome. He had heard about the fellowship there, but he had never, ever been there. He was not the founder of that church. And I love that. Even though he, that was not like a church, I could say, yeah, I started that. I established that. He was interested because he heard there were believers there of encouraging them and establishing them in their faith. We're told that there were um, by Tacitus, who was a Roman historian and wrote about um, the killing of Christians and the persecution of Christians by Nero. And he says at that time, when Nero began his persecution in 64 AD, that there were an immense multitude of Christians living in Rome. Not a few, but an immense multitude. So this letter had an effect of not only establishing this church, but so establishing this church that other believers were added to the church. Paul wanted these believers to be so cemented in their faith. In Romans 1 verses 11 through 12, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. He says, I want you to be so established in your faith. And then I want to receive the fruit of that faith. As you're established in faith, you can't help but bear fruit. And Paul says, I want to come. This is my certain 
expectation when I come and visit and I establish you in the faith, I establish you in the covenant of grace as I make sure that that's where you are and that's that what you know, you're going to be of mutual encouragement to me. Paul wanted these Romans to know the significance and power of what Christ had already accomplished for them on the cross. You know, the gospels tell us what Jesus did, but Romans works it into our system and says, this is why it's relevant. This is how you apply it. It's taking everything that Jesus did and putting it on the big screen and giving us the meaning, the significance, the relevance, and the application. That's what Romans does. And Paul wanted these believers to have that. Paul wrote this letter to share with them the essentiality of faith and grace and the value, the great, incredible value of faith and grace. And by faith and grace to be transformed. In this letter, you will find in chapters one through three, the condemnation of everyone everyone. Chapter one, you're going to go, oh yeah, this looks like the world I live in. And it's the condemnation of the bad people. We kind of figured that, right? Kind of figured bad people are condemned. That's it. That's a no brainer, right? But then chapter two, we're going to find that good people are also under condemnation. And in chapter three, we're going to find that religious people are also under condemnation. And we're told that God put everyone under the same condemnation that he might save all through faith in Christ Jesus. And these chapters of condemnation are going to show us that the law cannot save us. It's powerless. Our own rules cannot save us, but we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved. In chapters four through five, we're gonna learn the necessity and the history of faith. And we're gonna learn about the faith of Abraham and what Abraham's faith worked in him and what God did. Because Abraham believed the promises of God. But we're also, and this is the exciting thing about Romans 4 and 5, it tells us what those very steps of faith were for Abraham. How did Abraham get strong in faith? How did he strengthen that faith? You see, you have enough faith. You know, if you have a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. You have enough faith. Your problem is that you just need to strengthen the faith you have. So how did Abraham strengthen that faith? Well, stick around. And we will study it together. And we will learn how his strength was his strength. I can't fix it how his faith was strengthened. Sometimes you just have to give up a sentence and throw it out. There was nothing I could do with that one. I had to just do a new one. Okay. And then in chapters six and seven, we're going to learn more again about the weakness of the law. But in chapter six, you learn about how to have victory over sin. If you're somebody who keeps going back into sin, back into addiction, chapter six is your chapter. Chapter six is going to set you free from sin if you just do what it says. If you follow those directives, I promise you will be set free from sin. 
Years ago, my friend was doing a, a, a workshop on how to apply the Bible to her life. And she comes in my room, she goes, this retreat, do you have a bottle of shampoo? I'm like, yes. So I give her my bottle of shampoo. I said, what are you doing with my bottle of shampoo? You're supposed to be teaching a workshop. She's like, this is my workshop. I said, a bottle of shampoo is your workshop? She said, yes. She said, come and see. So I did. So she holds up and she said, you know, we need to apply the word of God, right? We've got to do what it says. She goes, for instance, I have this bottle of shampoo. Look at all these promises on this bottle. It says I'm going to have shiny hair. It's going to have volume. It's going to have body. It's going to be just beautiful. So if I carry this bottle every place I go, I even sleep with it. I put it on my nightstand before I go to bed. There you are, shampoo. Will it, will I receive the promises of that shampoo? Will that happen? Will my hair, will I wake up and my hair will be, you know, bright and bouncy and beautiful? And, you know, of course, we're all saying, no. And, and somebody said, you need to read the directions. She says, thank you so much. So she says, okay, if I read, you know, rinse hair with water, like you do something else, but you know how they have to be specific. Rinse hair with water. Apply dollop of shampoo, two hands rubbed together and put lather in hair. Work through entire scalp massage. Rinse. Great, I've read the directions. I've read the directions, I've got the bottle. Am I gonna have clean hair? No. What if I, okay, I don't like all the directions, okay? I don't really like water. So what if I just take the shampoo and just rub it on my hair, just as is, my hair dry, and I just kind of leave it in? Will I get the promises on that bottle? No. Okay. What if I just do step, I'll rinse, but then I want to leave the shampoo in. Will I get the results that the bottle promises? Well, I look at the bottle and go, you liar! It's not true! It doesn't work! And people will say, oh, have you used, you know, Bambi's shampoo? All that for Bambi, right? Have you used Bambi's shampoo? And they'll, they'll say, I, I tried it. It didn't work for me. Really? You tried it and it didn't work? Mm-mm. I had it for like two weeks in my room. I even moved it to my shower. Just never worked for me. Did you read the directions? Yeah, but it just didn't work. Did you do what it said? Well, I really didn't have time to do everything it said. So I just wet my hair and, and put some on and kind of left it. And you'd say, you have to do everything it says. You have to rinse it again. Because if you want the shampoo, you have to, the, the results it promises, you have to follow the directions. Do you think it's any less with the word of God? When you come to chapter six, and this is all about chapter six, so now I can't use that illustration. Darn. But it's going to be next year that we study it. I think it's January, so maybe you'll forget by then. <laughs> maybe I'll try, like, Ikea furniture, when you buy it, it's not going to look right unless you put it together according to the instructions. No, we'll see. You never know how I'll use that illustration in a different way. But the, here it is. When you get to chapter six, you're going to have to follow those directives. You follow those directives, I promise you, you will be set free. Chapter seven, you're going to say, I relate. It's that frustration 
of your own expectations of trying to go under the law, trying your hardest and just not being able to do it. And then we get to chapter eight, chapter eight, the crescendo of the Christian faith, the most amazing chapter. I try to make any other chapter, but Romans chapter eight, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, but it is the most wonderful, fantastic, glorious chapter because it begins with no condemnation and it climaxes in no separation from our Lord. It's just amazing. And it's coming. It's coming to a theater near you. No, it's coming here in our hearts. And we're going to be studying it. Then 9 11, 9 through 11, is God's plan for Israel. We're going to learn in 9 through 11 that God keeps all of his promises, that not one of God's promises to Israel will fail. You know, but he takes his time, but every promise that God has ever made will be fulfilled. In chapters 12 through 16, and I love chapter 12, I call it the altered life because we start out with putting our lives on the altar and then everything else through 16 in our behavior is the result of having our lives on the altar of God. Some have divided Romans like this. Chapters 1 through 8, the revelation of God's righteousness. Chapters 9 through 11, the vindication of God's righteousness. And chapters 12 through 16, the application of God's righteousness. Now, here's something really exciting about this letter. Paul wrote this letter, and then he gave it to a woman named Phoebe to deliver it to the church in Rome. You can find this, if you don't believe me, Romans 16, 1. That this incredible doctrinal epistle that would revolutionize so many lives was entrusted to a woman. You know, I find that interesting because there are some people that say women shouldn't teach doctrine. I've even had people say women shouldn't teach the Bible. Oh my goodness. It says in Titus that women are to be teachers of good things. What is gooder than the Bible? (laughs) And doctrine, if we don't know doctrine as women, and doctrine just means the teachings of the Bible, if we don't have our doctrine straight, we're going to be the worst influence around us because women are influential. And we need to know our Bibles and we need to know doctrine. And this doctrinal epistle that talks about grace and reconciliation and salvation and these essentials was first given to a woman, Phoebe. Go ahead, name your child Phoebe. It's all right. And if you can't get a poodle, because it works for a poodle. This woman, Phoebe, was a sister Paul calls her a sister in the Lord, putting her on an equal basis, making her a member of the family. He tells them she was a servant or a deaconess in the church in Centria. He also says that she was a saint and should be treated like a saint, that she was worthy of all the honors of a saint and that she had been a helper in the ministry. She had been a helper. She had been an essential part 
of spreading and establishing the gospel. She was a trustworthy carrier of this incredible doctrinal epistle that would establish the Roman church in the power of God's grace by faith. Why do I say that? Because Jesus has elevated women and returned our original glory to them, not by trying to be a man, but being women under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's where we get our value. That's where we get our identity. That's where we get our glory. So the purpose of Joyful Life. Why do we do things the way we do at Joyful Life? Because we not only want to read the book of Romans, but we want to study it and we want to explore it and we want to delve deeper into it and we want it to become part of us. And so we're going to be doing that by asking ourselves probing questions, thinking about it, meditating on it and writing our thoughts down. That's what we're going to be doing. And you can't have a wrong answer. You, you know, if you, you just, just write, just write. We, you know, we tend to go, what does the teacher want me to write? That's performance. <laughs> just write, just write down as you feel led and what the spirit speaks to you. We want to fellowship over it. We want to talk about it with each other. And when we talk about these truths with each other, they work deeper within us. And we receive a greater understanding. Women process as they talk. Thank you. Amen. That's the only thing I got an amen for today. Thank you. But we do. As we talk, we process. And that's how we work it into us. So we're going to talk about these truths. And we're going to get other perspectives of truth. Because you know what? It's the same truth. But somebody's going to be looking at it this way from the right and you're going to be looking at it maybe from the left and underneath and up you know from the top and 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 all of this is just going to make it get greater grace oh my goodness somebody's going to say this about grace and somebody else is going to say that about grace and through it because our god is complex and multifaceted and through it we're going to be able to magnify the lord and get his glory there are going to be times where you're like putting an answer that you don't really like down? How many of you ever written something you didn't really like and weren't really comfortable with, but you wrote it anyway? Thank you. I did too. And then you go to like the group and somebody else answers it. And you're like, that's the best answer. So you write it down like it was your own. And then when you get up to speak, you, you say it like, like you came up with it. Not that I've ever done that. I have, but it's like, I make it mine. If they said it, once they said it, anyone in the group can have it. It's the word of God. Freely, freely, they were given. Freely, freely, they gave. We took it. You get it. It's yours. Claim it. Hide it. Do it real quick. Grab that truth because that truth is now your truth and you can take it and you can share that truth with others for their, that, their edification. God's great truth and glory is for all of us. We're also going to sing praise together as we did today because it unifies our hearts as it does our voices. It unifies us because we're singing to the same God. We're singing the same attribute, the same glory. We're proclaiming the same need for our God. 
and our voices blend together to make one great voice coming to God. And in praise, we have a foretaste of heaven and the glory that we're entering into. It also prepares our heart for his word because we're opening up emotionally. We, you know, the world doesn't really sing. You know, they don't sing corporately unless, you know, hail our alma mater or, you know, God bless. We only do patriotic songs together. You know, really, we don't do any other songs as a group. And the songs that the world sing, I mean, they're usually about finding that guy, beating up that guy, getting rid of that guy, stuck with that guy, and, I, and my dog died. You know, there's just not a lot that, you know, is going on in those songs. But when we sing praise, yeah, those songs can get you so depressed because you don't got a guy. Or you don't want the guy you got. You want their guy. But when we sing praise and we fill our hearts and our minds with this praise, the Holy Spirit is coming in us and working in us. I'll never forget how Carol McClure wanted to improve her marriage and her husband. And the Lord spoke to her one day and said, while you worship, I will work. And while we worship and praise and proclaim the greatness of our God, we are releasing to him all those things that have kept us from hearing and, and receiving from him as we just praise. Praise is working in us. Also, praise is a way to respond back to God for all the glorious truths that he's been revealing to you. It's a way to respond back. We will also listen together to God's word, to the Bible study. And it's another feeding together of the same word, but it's a way to let those truths go even to a deeper level. I taught kindergarten for one year and we would take every learning style possible and try to incorporate it in the classroom, whether it was a kinesthetic you know, touch or whether it was repetition or, or it was um, uh, association, giving them a story that has to do with the letter A or a song that goes with the letter A, like the you know, aging ape. And we would do, um, or the jumping jaguar, we, who jumped into a Jeep. We would do this over and over again. And, and we would do like a dance with it. We would work it into them. So that letter would touch every child in that class and become one of everyone. And you know, I, I told this story. I'm going to tell it really quick. I had this student named Bonnie. Bonnie was a student that had the best lunches bar none. Her lunches, she had like the potato chips. She had like the fruit cup. She had like the pudding. She had like the cookies. And like she'd have like not a regular sandwich, but like a burrito or, you know, something really good. And, and then she'd have like those little cheeses and she'd have like crackers. She was like the skinniest beanpole in my class. But she had, you know, all of these things. And so we're going through and Bonnie's learned all of her letters. She can tell you what, you know, the, the, um, long A sounds and short A, and she knows her vowels. She knows her consonant blends. 
but she's not able to read. And all 19 of my students had learned to read but Bonnie. Now, Bonnie was the type, you got to understand this, in show and tell, she's like, she always wanted to do show and tell. And she's like, teacher, I've got something for show and tell. And I'm like, Bonnie, I don't see anything. I've got my sweater. And I said, okay. And the kids were like, no, don't litter. And she's like, this is not an ordinary sweater. This came from my grandmother. And I could tie it around my head. And she, you know, buttoned it here and wore it like, you know, a hat. And she goes, and then I could take the arms and tie them on top of my head for a different look. She did more things with that cardigan than I have ever seen anyone do. You know, and it took her like five minutes to demonstrate everything. That was Bonnie. So there we are. And she's, I'm at the table with her. The rest of the students are working and my assistant's working with them. And she's looking at the word ka-at. And she's going ka-at. Dog. No, Bonnie. Try again. Ka-at. Duck. No, Bonnie, but, but you're so close. And so I said, Bonnie, you need to hear yourself say it, and you need to listen to yourself. And she goes, now this is after weeks and weeks. Everybody else has. She's so frustrated. She thinks she's never going to learn to read. She goes, cat. Cat. I'm like, yes, yes. It's just like, cat, 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 bat, bat. Sat, sat. And she's reading all the words that are pasted all over the room. And then she's looking down and she's reading. And one of the kids, she's like, yay, Bonnie got it. He turns around, announces it to the class. The whole class cheers. Yay, Bonnie. We are joyful life for a reason. And as we get it. Grace. Grace. Ah! As we get grace together, we are going to encourage and establish and bless one another. That's why we're coming together. And we're also going to incorporate prayer. Prayer in your groups. And when you're going through something, you don't need to go through anything alone. You can tell your group leader. They can put it on a prayer request. And it goes out to whoever wants that prayer request. And we pray. And we pray. And prayer works. I was in a prayer meeting on Tuesday. A woman asked us to pray for a certain thing. We prayed for that thing. And before we were finished praying, we got a text that the Lord had taken care of it. Not only did we get that text, she said, you are great prayer warriors. I love that. God is going to work through prayer and we're going to see it. So our expectation for this year, come expectant to learn God's word and to go deeper. Come to have your faith strengthened. Come to be established in the gospel of grace. Come to be part of your real family with women that don't compete. Come to praise the Lord in song and worship.
Come to talk about Jesus and what he's doing. Come to be heard. Come to minister to someone. Come to be blessed. Here at Joyful Life is a place where you're wanted. I pray this feels like home. I pray that you say, this is a place where I have a room and a bed and I am loved. Here at Joyful Life, you are heard. Here at Joyful Life, you have the opportunity to be ministered to, but you also have the opportunity to minister to someone. And you have the opportunity to grow and be established in the gospel of grace. Welcome to the study of Romans this year in Joyful Life. Stand up, let's pray. Okay, Lord, these are your girls. And I thank you for that scripture that says, my age before you is as nothing. So Lord, I present these girls to you, Lord, because we're really young compared to Sarah. And Lord, I present them to you that you might work in them by your grace and through the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ and the assurance of the Holy Spirit. Lord, the truths, the truths and the relevancy of faith and grace and reconciliation and salvation. Lord, that these women might be transformed, not by their efforts, but by you and you alone, that they might point and said, Jesus did it all. Lord, will you bless them with friendships? Will you allow them to not ever, ever feel alone, but to know that you are with them and that they are part of a great company of women and a great family of God? Lord, will you remove the condemnation and in place of condemnation, will you allow your love and your comfort to flow like a river through them? Will you just simply bless your girls because you are a blessing God and may they know the power of your blessing in Jesus name. Amen.